Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given only six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question-answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be informative and provocative. This week's topics include applying network theory to COVID lockdowns, predicting financial crises, litigating for liberty, and gangs and mass incarceration. Our lead-off speaker today is an Israeli mathematician, Baruch Barzell, who is a professor at Bar Ilan University in Israel. Baruch studies network theory and has applied mathematics to improve the efficacy of COVID-related lockdowns. He will explain his method of splitting our population into two pods and then have each pod go into full lockdown every other week. Baruch thinks that this approach will reduce transmission without severely undermining economic activity. Our second speaker is Robin Greenwood, who joins us once again. Robin spoke previously on what happens next in mid-June to discuss debt structuring to avoid bankruptcy. Robin is back with us to discuss his new article on predicting financial crisis. Our third speaker is Scott Bullock, who is a president and general counsel of the Institute for Justice, which is a not-for-profit organization that uses litigation to fight for property rights and against undue regulations. Scott is going to talk today about his opposition to occupational licensing and IJ's litigation against our government's confiscation of property. I met Scott when he came to my office 25 years ago. He described his plan to litigate for liberty, and I pulled out my checkbook after he finished his presentation. Scott told me that I was the first person to hand him a check immediately after his pitch. Everyone else took months and needed to be encouraged to give. I knew right away that Scott and the Institute for Justice were going to be a force for good. My co-host, Rick Banks, will fully introduce our next segment on gangs and prisons later in the session. Our speakers for that segment will be Victor Rios, Connie Rice, and Dwayne Betts. We also have a special guest who will be asking questions, and that is Gary Feinerman, who is a federal judge in the Northern District of Illinois. Okay, that is our lineup for today. Since the beginning of what happens next, I have discussed the Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly employment statistics. I do this because these employment numbers are the best estimate for changes in the economy during this very uncertain period. This month's data was both fascinating and disappointing. Let's start with the establishment survey first, which uses data from large firms. This survey showed an increase in employment of 245,000 compared to 650,000 for the previous two months average. This pace is insufficient to get us back to full employment. The household survey, which uses a phone call to families at home, is a much more volatile series, but in these uncertain times, is superior at picking up trends and predicting hiring by small firms. In October, the household survey had a mind-blowing increase of employment of 2.3 million persons, but just last month, it showed a decline of 70,000 workers. Clearly, the employment trend has collapsed. I think that employers have decided to reduce hiring due to the second wave of COVID. When you look under the hood, what was surprising is the continued underperformance of the retail trade. Even with Black Friday and the upcoming Christmas holiday season, retail employment declined by 35,000 jobs in November and is down more than half a million since February. I suspect that retail employment will continue to worsen after the holiday season until the vaccine is widespread. There was also no improvement in leisure and hospitality employment and it is still down 3.4 million workers and remains our hardest hit sector. In the long run, the biggest problem is going to be the death of so many small businesses. In November, 14.8 million persons were unable to work because either their employer's business closed or lost business due to the pandemic. There are huge frictions to opening a new business and hiring staff. 
I know John Haltewanger spoke two weeks ago on this program about the surge in new business formation, but I remain deeply concerned that rehiring will take a long time. Small businesses generally do not do the most, excuse me, small businesses generally do the most of our new hiring, and it is these small firms that have been most decimated by COVID. I'm also concerned about the atrophy of work-related skills. Nearly 4 million persons have been out of work for six months or more, and an additional 5 million persons have abandoned the labor force. These individuals are likely mothers who are caring for kids from home as, as, kids, are in school, as kids are not in school, or are those who see little chance of finding employment. In addition, millions are choosing early retirement, and they will probably never return to the workforce, even when the economy recovers. All right, with that, I now turn uh, the call over to our first speaker, uh, Brooke Barzell, the Israeli mathematician. Brooke, go ahead, take it away. Thank you very much, Larry. How do we mitigate the spread of COVID-19 without completely crippling our economy? You see, my lab at Bar-Ilan University deals with network science. We study biological, infrastructure, brain networks. But recently, since the onset of the pandemic, we have directed our focus quite naturally to social networks and how we can use them to understand, predict, or mitigate the spread of COVID-19. And we came up with an idea that I believe can be a game changer along this path. We call it alternating quarantine. You partition society into two groups, cohort number one, the red group, cohort number two, the blue group. And then you have these groups alternating between work and quarantine in weekly succession. So in week number one, cohort number one, the red group, they go to work, shopping, send their kids to school, they live. While the blue group is instructed to stay at home and isolate themselves. And then in week number two, they switch. The blue group becomes active and the red group enters quarantine and they continue with this cycle. So what do we get from this? Well, we get the benefit of best of both worlds. Let's understand this. The first is the easy part. From the socioeconomic perspective, you get a 50% continuously active economy. At every point of time, half of the people can remain active. And from the individual perspective, it's much less stressful. Instead of an extended period of quarantine, you only have to isolate for a week at a time. But I think, especially in light of what Larry just mentioned in terms of the data on, on jobs, what's really crucial is that it's much more egalitarian. You see, if you are, like me, a scientist, COVID-19 is an inconvenience, but it's not an economic collapse. But if you're a small business owner or a restaurant owner, this has been devastating. What the alternating quarantine regime does is that it spreads the mitigation more in a more egalitarian fashion. Everyone suffers a 50% reduction in activity. So this restaurant owner, she can still run her restaurant full time, only with half of the customers and half of the staff, depending on the red and blue cycles. So the socioeconomic benefits are very intuitive and clear, but what does this do to the disease? You see, we asked ourselves, why does this virus spread so violently? I mean, we are strictly isolating everyone that's sick. If you show symptoms today, you're isolated. Nobody gets near you. But the problem is that this virus has a secret weapon because from the time you're exposed, it takes five or six days for the onset of symptoms. And during this incubation period, you're already becoming infectious. We call these the invisible spreaders. For all practical purposes, I may already be infected, but since I still do not show symptoms, I'm not cautious around my network, my friends are not cautious around me, and so I'm an invisible spreader. And these are the people who are contributing to the spread of this pandemic. But how do we selectively isolate the invisible spreaders? Well, the answer is, of course, you can't, they're invisible. But alternating quarantine achieves this quite naturally. 
Imagine that I'm in the red group. So in week number one, I go to work. I might get infected some days into that week. And within a couple of days, I'll enter my most dangerous phase. I'll enter my invisible spreading phase. But here's the point. Within these couple of days, I'll enter week number two, and then I'll be isolated at home. So alternating quarantine naturally directs you to be at home exactly at the time of your suspected peak infectious period. By the end of week number two, well, if I develop symptoms, naturally I need to isolate, but I'm no longer an invisible spreader. I now have symptoms. Everyone knows I'm sick. If I do not develop symptoms by the end of week number two, then most chances are, it's not 100%, but most chances are that I was never infected, I'm clear to go, and I can resume work in week number three according to the plan. So it's like a ratchet movement. What you get, and this is exactly where I need you concentrated, you get the weekly periodicity to naturally synchronize with the disease timescales in a way that it works like a ratchet movement, every weekly cycle removing the invisible spreaders until after a couple of cycles you end up with a predominantly healthy workforce. So here is the number one question, how many cycles? And the answer is according to our simulations, which were done under the most strict and detailed uh, conditions, according to our simulations, it depends on how much risk you're willing to take, but we're talking about something like five to six weeks until you get this predominantly healthy workforce and you eradicate the COVID-19 from society. Now, five to six weeks is a mitigation performance that is comparable to a 75, 80% full lockdown. The data shows that even the strictest countries weren't able to enforce this level of reduction in economic activity. So you get a mitigation effect of a 75 to 80% full lockdown, but you still get an economy which is reasonably active at a 50% capacity. You get the best of both worlds. Now, since we published this, we've been in contact with something like 10 different governments, and we brought up a team on all the practical implementation. How do you partition a society at a national level? How do you garner cooperation? How robust is this strategy against partial cooperation? Because social science is never an exact science, and there are always defectors and people cutting corners. We put all that in, and there are many details, most of them way beyond what I can insert within a six-minute pitch. So the strategy does require some effort in terms of planning and in terms of implementation. But in light of its clear socioeconomic and epidemiological benefits, I believe this effort is undoubtedly merited. Brooke, that's fascinating. Um, so when you said you talked to some governments, um, like who? Did you talk to the Israelis, for example? Um, do you talk to national governments, more local governments? Who's, who's particularly interested in something like this? So it all started when I was nominated to the committee that was advising the Israeli government back in March on how to design an exit strategy. And that's when we started working on this idea and it entered the official recommendations. And once we published this, we were contacted by the Israeli government, by uh, the Argentinian and Chilean government, by France, the UK, Germany, it was pretty amazing the level of interest this, this, that this garnered. I have to admit, we weren't able to push any government to apply this at a national level. And that was a kind of a disappointment for us. We learned something about the difference between science and politics. But what we were able to do is get this to be partially implemented. So in Austria and in Israel, schools adopted this idea of working in weekly alternations. Uh, in the U.S., for example, uh, I think it was in Missouri, the... Uh, uh, incarceration facilities, they worked 
in this alternating shift. Big corporations like uh, thousands of tens of thousands of workers in Germany that adopted this way of working in Argentina. Uh, again, it, it came not from the politicians, but actually from the economic sector. It was the uh, industrialists who pushed to go back to work in, in, in this fashion. So unfortunately, we weren't able to get this to be applied at a national level, which is why I'm speaking here. Maybe uh, the new uh, government, maybe the new president in the U.S. will adopt this, but it was implemented partially and rather successfully in many different uh, societies. You know, the, the next big thing is going to be um, these vaccines that are going to be coming out. Um, they won't be full implementation. It'll be a partial uh, distribution. How do you think about vaccine distributions in the context of your strategy as well? So the one thing that's clear, uh, I think there are two things that's clear. The one thing is that vaccines are not going to be around, even if, if they're already at the uh, advanced stages of development, most of us are not going to be vaccinated within the next maybe couple of months, maybe even the next year. So we can't uh, neglect the social distancing policies. That's the only thing we have until they arrive. I think Dr. Fauci put this very nicely. He said, when you know that the Cavaliers are on their way, you don't stop fighting. So we will still need social distancing strategies in the U.S., definitely in other places around the world, until the vaccines, mass vaccination is achieved. The second thing is that, you know, we should be ready for the fact that even after vaccination, maybe in a year or two, maybe even in a decade, a new strain will come by. A, pan a new strain of pandemic might come by. And, you know, this was, people say, our first COVID-19. So we looked at the government and we say, okay, you improvised. You weren't ready. This was the first COVID-19 we ever had. If there is another outbreak in two or three or maybe 10 years, I think every civilian should expect their government to have a ready-made plan in their cabinet. And what I suggest is that alternating quarantine is this plan that you instigate once you have a new outbreak. That's, that's very interesting. Um, you talked about um, partial solutions like at schools. Um, can you maybe expand on that? And are schools doing it completely? Because I think you need a complete acceptance. So is it teachers and students and administrators all going every other week in these pods? Otherwise, they've got that you know, continuation. And does it, it, how effective is that when your parents aren't also in the same uh, transmission mechanism pod? You talked about the That's infection problems. And That's a very good point because, okay, the one thing about the alternating quarantine, which is kind of sacred, is that you get isolated cohorts. You don't want to have cross-infection between the cohorts. Otherwise, you lose a little bit of the mitigation efficiency. If it's just a little bit, you can handle it. But if it's too much, then the whole thing kind of mixes up. So that's why we thought that it should be at a regional level, at a state level, at a country level, at a national level. But sometimes you need to compromise uh, for schools and for penitentiaries and for several big corporations. This was a very natural way to go back uh, to business. And our, our approach was this. I mean, if you are the Ministry of Education, your responsibility is to reduce infections as much as possible in schools. If you are the uh, um, CEO of a big corporation, your responsibility is to reduce infections as much as, as, much as you can in your premises, in your workspace. And by opting for alternating quarantine locally, you're doing just that. So if many businesses adopt it, forget about the government. If many businesses adopt it, it really contributes to the reduction. If you really want to get to the levels that I was talking about, the level of a 75 or 80% quarantine, 
Well, then you would need to implement it at a national level, which requires a little bit of more thought. We've put that thought. We have a, a detailed plan on how to do that, but governments seem to be reluctant uh, to adopt this kind of out-of-the-box idea at full scale. When I read your paper, you showed um, a decline in cases that was exceptional, something in the 90 to 95% range relatively quickly. Uh, what is the mathematics that causes this in, uh, incredible decrease in cases because of um, your pod strategy, if you will? So there, there are two things here. One thing which I did not talk about, uh, and maybe I'll take this opportunity to talk about, and the other is the synchronization. Let's start with the first. You see, uh, what social distancing does is it dilutes the number of interactions. Now, you can think about diluting the time of interactions. If everyone isolates for a week and then works for a week, then you only interact for half the time. This cuts the magic number, R0, right, the reproduction number. This cuts it by roughly a factor of one half. Then, if 50% of the people work and 50% of the people at home, you have classes half full, buses half full, offices half full. Once again, you reduce R0 by roughly a factor of one half. Now, alternating quarantine is kind of a, a mathematical magic. You do both things, right? First of all, you partition society into two separated cohorts. That reduces the level of infection because you dilute the interaction between people. And then each of these cohorts alternates, works for a week, stays home for a week. So you get double reduction. You reduce the time of interaction, you reduce the number of interactions. So you get a fourfold reduction in R0 with just a 50% reduction in economy. So it's kind of a mathematical magic trick, but when you think about it, that's the best you can do. You mitigate the disease by a factor of four, but you only reduce your economy by a factor of 50%. But just one more minute, because I think I lost some of the listeners here with these mathematics. The other reason that this works so well, and that's like a force multiplier to what I just said, is much easier to understand. And that is the idea that this disease has a time scale of roughly one week. It takes one week, about one week, five to six days, to develop symptoms and start infecting, and then another week to stop infecting. So by working a week on and a week off, you synchronize with the disease. You get infected in week number one, you're isolated exactly when you start infecting others at week number two, and by week number three, most likely you're clear to go. So the disease kind of directs you naturally to be isolated precisely at the time when you are at your peak infectious phase. Baruch, thank you. Um, we're gonna move Can on I to our second speaker. Um, that's Robin Greenwood. Robin is the George Fund Professor of Finance and Banking at Harvard Business School. Um, he's just written a new paper on predicting financial crises. Robin, go ahead. Thank you, Larry. Always an honor to be with you. Um, so I want to start with uh, two quotes, uh, which I think tell you about um, the policymaker perspective on financial crises, which is really that even if there's a degree of predictability um, in financial crises, by and large, uh, they are not predictable and the timing is not predictable, and therefore we should focus our efforts on cleaning up after the fact rather at, or making the system more resilient rather than, in fact, taking preemptive measures to avoid them. So the uh, first of these quotes is by Hank Paulson. He says, my strong belief is that crises are unpredictable in terms of cause or timing or the severity when they hit. 
Ben Bernanke said this crisis, he was referring to the 2008-2009 crisis, involved a 21st century electronic panic by institutions. It was an old-fashioned run in new clothes, essentially referring to the crisis as a bank run. So what do we do in this, in this work is try to reevaluate the historical evidence. We collected data on just over 40 countries going back to the 1950s and try to reassess how predictable really uh, financial crises were. And here we're relying on data that other people have put together on classifying what exactly is a crisis and what exactly is not a crisis. It turns out, in fact, there's quite a bit of agreement between people about what exactly were crises. So, for example, Japan and uh, 1990 in the United States and 2008, for example. So it's actually not that hard to identify. And what we do is try to figure out uh, how predictable they are. And the first uh, observation that I would leave you with is that if you look at simple measures that people have looked at in the past, so for example, credit growth or asset price growth, uh, they by themselves don't predict crises very well. So um, people have for example, run done statistical analyses where they try to say, well, if the credit grows in the economy by X percent of GDP uh, over the previous three to five years, that predicts a crisis. And that is true, uh, but we're increasing the crisis probability from an unconditional probability of about 4% to perhaps 8 or 9%. So not really strong enough evidence that a policymaker could do very much with. So what we do is we separate uh, household credit growth from business credit growth. And uh, then we look at the interaction between credit growth and asset price growth. And here is where the stunning uh, facts just jump out at you uh, in the data, which is to say that it's the coincidence of credit growth and asset price growth that are really good predictors of financial crisis. So let me just put that very simply. When housing prices go up a lot and housing credit goes up by a lot, that predicts a crisis. Or when business credit goes up a lot and the stock market goes up a lot, that also predicts a financial crisis. And in fact, when you get both of those things at the same time, which is very rare, but Japan in 1989 is an example, then the probability of a crisis is very high. So let me flesh that out and then talk about what you can do with any of that evidence. So first, the unconditional probability of a crisis, I already mentioned this number, is about 4%. Once you condition on the coincidence of credit growth, high credit growth and high asset price growth, that number goes to about 40% over a three-year period. Okay? When you're looking at the combination of both business and household credit, that number can be over 60%. So we're really talking about situations like Japan uh, in the late 1980s. The next thing we do is we look at local versus global overheating in credit markets. And here, uh, the data is also pretty illuminating. So it's not just whether there is a credit boom and associated asset price boom in your country that predicts a crisis. It's also, if that's happening in other countries, uh, that means that policymakers should be more wary uh, as well. So what do you do with all of this evidence? We use it to build two indicators. One we call the red zone, which is these incidents where credit growth and asset prices are also are both high. Um, and as I said, when the orange zone indicator lights up, the probability of a crisis is 40%. And then we build a more benign indicator when prices are up a little bit and credit is up a little bit. Um, 
we call that the yellow zone, to say that maybe you should think about doing preemptive action. Now, one of the, those of you who are focused on statistics will know that 40% probability of a crisis means that there's 60% probability that you don't have a crisis. And it raises the question of how strong the predictability has to be to warrant taking early action to avert or mitigate uh, the severity of a crisis, given that it's very possible uh, that you could be uh, wrong. And it turns out that there's different ways of defining these danger zones, um, and that they give you this natural statistical trade-off between false negative errors and false positive errors. So just as an example, many of the crises that are not preceded by this indicator going off, they're near misses in the sense that credit and asset price growth fall just short of our assignment uh, thresholds. Uh, but they are preceded by these more benign measures, this yellow zone that, uh, that, that I indicated. So we use those together, and uh, we then try to evaluate whether, for example, in 2008, the lights were shining red so that the policymakers might have uh, taken preemptive action. And there the, the evidence is, is definitely very strong. Uh, the costs of a crisis are so high uh, as a percentage of GDP, that even given the 60% prob probability that one is wrong, um, it warrants taking early action. Now, one of the questions that I'll leave you with that we don't address in this paper is how to think about crisis prevention when uh, you have the timing off, which is to say, suppose that you figured out that you were in a highly uh, bubbly environment in credit markets and asset price markets, asset markets, uh, but you figured it out just at the end. Um, how do you think about, as a policymaker, uh, taking action? Do you, for example, raise rates and pop the bubble, but perhaps make things worse? Uh, or do you, at the moment, if you've re realized that you figured it out too late, uh, do you hold back? So I think that's an interesting question. Uh, still needs to be resolved, and actually, you know, speaks to uh, the practical problem that is facing uh, policymakers who are looking at all of this. And I'll stop there. Thanks, Robin. You know, one of the things that I uh, was thinking about when I was reading your paper was the fact that uh, these are collinear in the sense that it affects many countries at the same time. And I was thinking, let's just take the if you were Canada uh, in this example, and we were having we were in the red zone for Europe uh, and the United States, maybe China as well. I mean, what possible thing could Canada have on this situation to protect itself in a, in a global uh, bubble collapse? Well, so, sorry, what, what could Canada do? So um, it, the, the issue is, is that I imagine what's going on is that there's either very loose uh, monetary policy or animal spirits have got ahead of themselves in the housing market and the stock markets. And and the question is, is you know, what sort of policy considerations uh, should the country do? But when you include 40 countries in, in your analysis, there are, it turns out, a, a, just a handful of, of rather large players that are going to drive this credit and household expansion. And they're the United States, Europe, Japan, maybe China. Sure. And to the extent that you're not one of those four countries, you're sort of like the the tail that's wagging the dog, you know, you're going to get slapped around no matter what if the United States goes into a credit crisis. Sure, you're along for the ride. Absolutely. That, that is a very interesting observation. Actually, one that we don't deal with in the paper, but, uh, but now that you raise it, 
what would you do if you were Canada and you were sure that your neighbor was in a gigantic uh, credit bill that was going to collapse? I would say that the first thing you could do is you could raise capital requirements on the bank. So you could do things that would make your system overall safer, uh, even if you couldn't take preemptive action to change the course of the crisis. Um, so that, I think that would be a, a, a definitely a natural thing to do. So for example, there are places like Singapore, uh, and I'm not an expert on the individual histories of these uh, countries, but Singapore, for example, raises loan-to-value ratios uh, when they're worried about a credit boom. You might imagine doing that even if you weren't in a credit boom yourself uh, because it will make uh, your economy more resilient uh, in the aftermath. One of the uh, strategies that you did not mention was changes in fiscal policy. And I, th I think that's interesting. You know, when I was in college and taking macroeconomics classes, uh, they would always say that, oh, fiscal policy can reduce the business cycle. Uh, but you didn't even list it as a, as a choice. And, and the second thing is, is, to what extent does your red zone just reflect changes in, an, in, an, in a normal business cycle? The, the red zone is, uh, so maybe I should say a few words about how it's constructed. Um, and then turn to your to your first question. So the way we measure it is a change in the ratio of credit to GDP. So at some level, it's already normalized by total output in the economy. Um, so it is, uh, now that said, it's not a perfect normalization because credit does grow uh, faster uh, than GDP in booms. Um, and so to some extent, you are just, you are picking up booms, but you're picking up a particular type of boom, which is, what, which is one with high credit growth. Um, I would say in general, if you look at the history, in, at least in the United States, uh, of credit growth, you'll see that at the beginning of a boom, credit doesn't grow particularly fast. And then it kind of heats up, um, actually just as the Fed usually is starting to raise rates and so on. So it seems like there's a little bit of, there is a bit of a disconnect between the credit, uh, credit, uh, credit markets and, and the macro economy. Now in terms of fiscal policy, um, Fiscal policy surely plays a role in the, the economy uh, and probably is going to have to play a larger role uh, going forward. We don't really think that fiscal policy plays a big role in driving the credit markets, and so it's something that I haven't really uh, attacked here. Uh, perhaps in extreme circumstances it might. So, for example, if you had a massive fiscal uh, stimulus, like, I mean, so we had a massive tax cut under Trump, for example, that certainly uh, was supportive of what was happening in the credit markets uh, uh, the, past, the past couple of years. But I don't think the fiscal stuff is anything close to as impactful uh, as what the Fed does. In your paper, you mentioned something you called the Kindleberger-Minsky framework uh, or model. And one of the interesting things that Hyman Minsky did as an econ professor at Washington University of St. Louis, he said that, um, that techniques to minimize the credit booms uh, are often undermined. Regulatory changes by the state are undermined by the market. And if, for example, that you started manipulating um, capital ratios for banks, that non-banks would substitute for banks in providing uh, credit expansion. And it's very challenging for uh, the Fed or, or other institutions to undermine both housing and um, credit booms. And so I'm wondering how you thought about uh, the, I'll call it the non-bank or 
uh, regulatory arbitrage that Minsky predicts will make it very challenging to reduce the boom-bust cycle. It's another great observation. It's a topic that I've worked on in another setting. Uh, I would say there are two types of policies you can consider. One is heavy-handed policies that say, for example, uh, raise your capital requirements on a set of institutions. Um, another is a set of policies that change the prices. That's what the Fed does, right, by changing essentially the price of money. Um, and I think uh, Jeremy Stein, my co-author on previous work, has this expression that he used in a, in a speech when he was a governor of the Fed. He says that the benefit of monetary policy is it gets in the cracks and in a, in a way that direct regulation does not because, of course, there are going to be always entities that can get around the, edu uh, can get around the regulation. I think of these two things as being compliments. Um, you know, I mean, maybe this takes a rather generous view of the regulatory state, but I would say uh, having just one is likely to be uh, in, in, insufficient. What, um, how do you think policymakers, particularly the Fed, will use your red zone analysis um, as a practical matter? I mean, it, re so, it reminds me of Alan Greenspan trying to prick uh, the NASDAQ bubble and then the stock market then, you know, ex exploded. Does that sort of experience of, I'll call it that famous Greenspan comment, make the Fed much more reluctant to participate in bubble bursting? Yeah, I mean, remember, Greenspan ultimately had zero effect on the, on the, on the bubble, uh, to be fair. Uh, I mean, you know, markets move for a day or two, and, 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 and people wrote lots of articles in the Wall Street Journal about it, but it didn't have much impact. Um, I, let me give you a very direct example. So, you know, suppose that you had a you know, central bank, you got an inflation target of, of two, and uh, credit is booming, and stocks market is up, and it turns out that your inflation is running at 1.7%. Now, if you're a central bank and you're going by the Taylor rule, you'd say, geez, I really need to pump on the gas to get the economy really up to my 2%. That's my mandate. Okay? Our logic would suggest a little bit more caution. Just say, you know, there are other aspects of the economy that are booming, and uh, when you have these credit credit booms that are accompanied by asset price booms, it's possible that that leads to a financial crisis. Maybe you could take it easy on monetary policy, on stimulus, uh, stimulative monetary policy early on in the boom, uh, just just to be careful. So I would say it's I'm skeptical of using our type of results, um, you know, to pop a bubble, for example. But I think they can be useful just in perspective for. Um, maybe not being quite so aggressive early on in the boom uh, in order to get uh, inflation inflation up to, uh, to to where it should be. Larry, it, it may not be the right time, but I wonder whether I had a, I had a question for your previous speaker. Um, oh, please, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, the, the question that I had was uh, how robust – I love the, the proposal. It's really interesting, and, and the math, it's some beautiful math behind it. I wonder how robust is it to uh, non-compliance, um, and whether whether uh, one wants to think about that. So, for example, if you had 10% uh, non-compliance, and, and how to think about what the impact on that would, uh, uh, of non-compliance would be on the regime. 
Yeah, so thank you very much. This is a, I'm happy you asked that. This is Baruch speaking here. Um, so we tested that very rigorously. We actually implemented defectors, people who are non-compliant. Uh, people really just cut corners, but our defectors in our simulations are people who flat out violate the rules, so it's much stricter than uh, in the practical world. And we found that, you know, even under the strictest conditions that we put in our simulations, this worked pretty well with up to 15, sometimes even 20% level of defection. 20% of the people who flat out violate the, the, the quarantine routine. So it's very robust against non-compliance. Now, I don't want to take out too much time because this, I mean, we're in the middle of the other talk, but we've also put a lot of thought on not just how robust it is to non-compliance, but how do you garner social conformity and compliance? Maybe uh, later on when there's some more time for free discussion, we can discuss that too. But we put up some pretty strong strategies to make sure that we do get compliance. But in any case, even if you have 15, 20% of non-compliance, this still works pretty well. Beyond that, it starts to deteriorate. Great, really helpful. Thank you. Okay. Um, let's go ahead to our third speaker. That's Scott Bullock. Scott is the president and general counsel for the Institute for Justice. He'll be discussing uh, litigation against burdens and regulations and zoning requirements, as well as defending property rights. Go ahead, Scott. Thanks so much, Larry. It's great to join you uh, for the call. The Institute for Justice is the national law firm for liberty, and we are in court every day defending the rights of ordinary Americans who would otherwise really not have a chance fighting against um, abuses of their constitutional rights. We're involved in a number of different areas, and I'm going to talk about two of them uh, today. And they're interesting issues because they're ones that uh, are a bit underappreciated, but they're also issues that where there's widespread consensus that reform of these laws is desperately needed. So the first one I'm going to talk about is the right uh, to earn a living, what we call economic liberty, and how this is probably most profoundly impacted by modern-day occupational licensing laws. And in the 1950s, about 120 people needed a license in order to practice their profession. Today, that number is about one in four. And the numbers are huge, the amount of people that this impacts. It's more workers than union members and minimum wage workers combined. So this really does have a, a direct impact upon people's ability to earn a living. And what we're not talking about here are kind of legitimate licensing attempts, uh, licensing laws that go toward protecting public health and safety. But for far too many professions, licensing laws are really about economic protectionism. And so we've done a whole series of cases trying to break down these barriers to the right to earn a living. So we've represented everybody from African hair braiders to taxi cab drivers before the uh, revolution in ride-sharing services. As many of your listeners probably uh, know, it was extremely difficult to get a license to drive a cab uh, within uh, many cities. The, uh, the medallions in New York were uh, worth over a million dollars. This was not about protecting public health and safety. This is about restricting competition and driving up prices. We were, we've defended street vendors um, and a number of other, especially entry-level positions. One of my favorite cases that I did when I was litigating uh, for IJ was a case where we represented the monks of St. Joseph Abbey. 
And the monks uh, had made handmade wooden caskets for over a century for their brethren. And monks, uh, even though they don't need a lot of uh, resources, have always been great entrepreneurs. They've, ba they've uh, brewed beer, they've uh, baked bread, they've been farmers. And so they saw an opportunity to sell these caskets to uh, parishioners as a way of supporting the abbey. And parishioners liked the fact that they were made by the monks and the monks prayed while they were making them. There was one problem. As soon as they started offering these uh, caskets for sale, they were sent a cease and desist letter by the Louisiana Board of Funeral Directors and Embalmers, a nine-member board, eight of uh, members, eight of which is members are licensed funeral directors themselves. And so it really demonstrated the fact that so many of these licensing boards are made up of people that are in the protected industries. So we filed a lawsuit on behalf of the monks and won an important decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that said economic protectionism, simply protecting certain industries from competition and having an impact upon people's ability to work, is not a legitimate government interest. So uh, that was um, a great decision that we've now been building upon. And as I mentioned, this is a, a, an issue that really cuts across ideologic, the ideological spectrum. Uh, probably President Obama's Council on Economic Advisors and Donald Trump's Labor Department don't agree on very much, but both of them agreed on the need to reform occupational licensing laws in the country. So let me turn to the second uh, uh, thing I'm going to talk about today, and that is civil forfeiture. And this is really an issue that probably many of your listeners might be familiar with. If they're not, it's a, a power that many people can't believe exists in a country that is supposed to respect private property rights and rights to due process. Uh, civil forfeiture is the ability of government to take your property without convicting or even charging you with the crime. And that means they could take, the government can take your home, your business, your cash, or your car. And this is very distinct from criminal forfeiture. Criminal forfeiture is tied to the conviction of a, uh, of a property owner for wrongdoing. Civil forfeiture actions are actions against the property themselves. So they have very bizarre case names, like a case that we litigated in Texas called State of Texas versus 1-2004 Chevrolet Silverado. And because this is a civil action, the burdens are much lighter upon government, and you don't even have such things as a right to an attorney uh, if you can't afford one like you do in a criminal trial. We have a report coming out this month that shows how incredibly lucrative this is for law enforcement. Uh, we documented using the numbers that were available that over a 20-year period, uh, federal, state, and local governments have forfeited $68.3 billion, with a B, dollars uh, from property owners. Uh, so this is something that is an enormous nationwide uh, problem. It's also one that disproportionately impacts people of modest means. Civil forfeiture is not time, oftentimes used against the kingpins, as our study also shows that the typical forfeiture is just $1,300 in cash or the value of property. Well, why is this happening? As so many people listening in on the call know, as every economist will tell you, incentives matter. And the law was changed in the 1980s to give law enforcement agencies a direct financial incentive to forfeit as much property as possible. Before that, forfeiture revenue went to the general revenue account of the state. 
now at the federal level and in most states, law enforcement agencies are entitled to keep everything that they forfeit uh, for themselves, thereby giving them this direct financial incentive to take as much property as possible. And many uh, property owners throughout the country have paid the price for that. Like the issue of occupational licensing and, uh, and economic liberty, there is broad consensus that uh, this is wrong, that something has to be done about it. We are hopeful that uh, the new uh, Congress and the new administration will look at federal forfeiture laws anew and try to reform this. But like with economic liberty and with civil forfeiture, there are powerful interest groups on the other side that um, are determined to keep the status quo as it is. So uh, that is why it's important for us to be in court fighting against these laws uh, of occupational licensing laws and civil forfeiture laws and many uh, others to give ordinary Americans some hope against, uh, against these egregious abuses of power. Thanks. Scott, thank you. Um, actually, I, was, I wanted to open up with maybe asking you to talk about one of your cases that I found um, very interesting, and that related to, I think it was in Georgia, the case of that motel, where the feds working with local governments were able to figure out which motel did not have a mortgage, um, and then waited for a drug deal to happen at the motel, and then they basically confiscated the entire motel, even though the owner had nothing to do with the, the crime. Can you talk a little bit about that case and why it was particularly obnoxious? Absolutely. It really epitomizes everything that's wrong with uh, civil forfeiture laws. Uh, and this was a, um, a case in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, actually. And it was a family-owned uh, motel, yeah, that, that um, had been around for a long time. And um, the federal government worked with the local police department to file a forfeiture action. And the name of that case was United States of America versus 434 Main Street, Tewksbury, Massachusetts. And so the action was against the property itself. As we demonstrated during the case, the property owner had no knowledge of and certainly did not consent and definitely did not participate in any of these what were essentially low-level drug dealing that was that was occurring at, at the motel. But the our government's argument was that doesn't matter. The property was involved in, in the crime, and so therefore that should be enough under civil forfeiture statutes. And so we represented him, fought back against uh, this attempt. Uh, I should also point out, too, how draconian these laws are. Uh, Mr. Caswell, um, who owned the motel, this was his business, this was his retirement, and if he would have had um, this property forfeited, he would have lost everything. Uh, so the stakes in the fight were enormous. We thankfully were able to step in and represent him and beat back this attempt by the U.S. Attorney's uh, Office in Boston to take this property. But it really demonstrated um, how egregious these laws are and how difficult it is to fight back against them because most people, uh, uh, lawyers don't come cheap. As I mentioned, you're not entitled to a lawyer because it's a civil proceeding even if you can't afford one. And so oftentimes people were forced into settling with the government because the cost of the legal uh, fight will quickly outstrip the value uh, of the property. So it was one that we were happy to set this important precedent, um, but it one that, again, that demonstrated how, how problematic these laws are. Um, I wanted to go in a slightly different direction for a few minutes. Um, and that is sometimes um, you win by losing. And one of the cases that you did was this famous Kilo case, um, which related to eminent domain where the government 
uh, took private property just to give it to another person uh, for a private use. Um, that case you ended up taking to the Supreme Court and losing, um, but you may have won the, the bat, won the war, but lost the battle. Can you tell us a little bit about Kilo and why it was so important? Yeah, that was a case that was, you're absolutely right. We've had nine cases up before the Supreme Court. That's the only one that, that we actually lost. But um, it, it's one of the primary reasons why when you do this type of work, when you do public interest law, you're not just arguing in the courts of law. You're arguing in the court of public opinion, and you're using all the tools of public interest law, of uh, you building uh, awareness of this in the media, working at the grassroots uh, level on community activism, doing strategic research to document the extent of, of the problem because you want to um, shine a spotlight on this issue to such an extent that even if you have a um, setback in court, like we certainly did in the Kilo case, people uh, know about this issue, were outraged about what is happening, and you have the, then the means to try to change this um, in, in other forums as well. And so that was a, an example of people were just shocked that the Supreme Court had signed off on something like this and said that just a pure economic development, the increase, the prospect of the increase of tax revenue or, or more jobs is enough to justify the use of eminent domain, which is really, which is under the Constitution, as many of your, um, the listeners will know, is really confined to public uses. That's in the language of the Constitution itself. And the court said, well, we're going to take a broad view of public use, and that really, that's going to mean public benefit. And public benefit is more tax revenue and improved economy. But that's really a vision of eminent domain without any sort of meaningful limitation. Everybody could come up with a more productive use of, of your land than what you're making of it. And that's one of the, the real tragedies of this is that uh, all governments have to do is, is project. And, um, and oftentimes the history of eminent domain abuse when it was used in urban renewal schemes back in the, in the 50s and 60s and up until the Kilo case is that um, these, uh, these projects oftentimes fail to live up to expectations or in many instances, like what happened in New London and, and so many other uh, inner city neighborhoods, they're just complete disasters and, uh, and neighborhoods are cleared and nothing is built. And that's, that's what happened in, in the Kilo case. But it is a great example of, of how you can take a setback in, in court and, uh, and turn it into a win. We're ultimately trying to get that issue back up before the Supreme Court. Uh, many justices have said that they do not think that that decision will, will stay on the books forever. But um, this is one where the, we've been able to change the legal landscape to such a degree that um, it's not as much of an issue as it once was. In the 1990s and 2000s, it was happening all over the country. Now there's more isolated instances uh, of it because of the changes in the law and the fact that developers and city councilors know how unpopular this is. Well, hi, 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 Scott. This is Rick Banks. This is a fascinating litigation, uh, and I've taught as a as a law professor. I've taught the the casket makers case to great effect, and that that's a oh, wonderful great. case, uh, and it is outrageous. Uh, but my question is, how do you determine in the, the 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 scheme of licensing laws which ones seem outrageous and which ones do you think should stand as justifiable? Uh, I mean, presumably you think that, you know, doctors should be licensed by a medical board, for example, um, but the casket makers cases at the other extreme, how do you draw the line in there between what's permissible and what's not? 
Yeah, it's a great question, and it's always a balancing act. And, and what we really look for is the origins of, of these laws and, and why they were passed. Were there people that were legitimately concerned about protecting public health and safety and said, hey, let's have some minimal standards uh, in place, uh, then we're not going to challenge those. There's some, uh, for instance, uh, cosmetology laws, hair braiding laws, which is the cases that we've, we did for a number of years, that say, listen, you've got you've got to take some courses on sanitation and you have to know what to look for in people's scalp if there might be some type of disease and that sort of thing on it. We're not going to challenge those. And you know, people can make the argument from a, from a pure market perspective that, listen, you, there's private alternatives to that and you can have certification and there's market solutions to that. And I certainly get that, but, it, but it's not something that's going to be able to be challenged in, in court and, and, and win. And again, if it's more directed toward public health and safety, then we're not going to challenge it. But there's so many instances and there's so many targets where it's just pure economic protectionism. I'll give you an example yep. of one of the areas that we're challenging right now that um, that uh, is in the medical field or these certificate of need laws that exist in, in many states where anybody that wants to provide new medical services must petition the government uh, and then the competitors, typically large hospital chains, get to intervene in those proceedings and say, well, we have no more need for MRIs, for instance, in, in this area. We've got it covered. And, uh, and that is where it is really not about, are they really worried about um, uh, protecting the public, or are they really worried about limiting competition in order to, to raise their prices? And so um, the ones where we can document that it's really about economic protectionism, those are the ones that, that we target. And, and have you concluded in those cases that because these are situations where the legislature has been captured, that your only route to reform is to pursue litigation rather than to advocate for a legislative change? Yeah, I mean, we, we do have some legislative work, and um, and it's one of the reasons why that we are in court is is to show that it's really difficult to change the law because of regulatory capture uh, here, and that's one of the reasons why we have courts is to level that is to level that playing field, and that's what happened when we represented the monks, for instance. Uh, you know, they said, well, we don't we don't really like don't like to sue. We're monks. You know, that's not really our style is, is to do litigation, and they tried twice at the Louisiana legislature to to try to change the law. They thought they worked with a sympathetic legislator, and, um, and, uh, and they wanted to do that. And then after two rounds and getting slaughtered, basically, by the uh, Louisiana Funeral Directors Association, every single time in the legislature, they said, all right, now we're ready to sue. And what's, what's good about this, though, is there is more interest in um, legislatures now because of the recognition that this is a real problem, the impact that it's having upon workers and others. And so um, that's something that, that we're, we're encouraged by, that there's, there's, we, there's actually more hope, certainly than the, what there was when we started litigating this about 25 years ago, um, to pass some meaningful reforms to, to try to break down these barriers. Okay, and and, and and where do you think the, the where do you think the problem is, is is worse, right? For for listeners who are wondering, there are so many regulations out there. Are there particular industries where you think the the harms and the, and the loss of the public are greatest? Well, I mean, it, there's it's really across the board, and and, and we we we're doing both 
ones where it has a real impact upon entry-level occupations, and that's where people are just trying to get the first rung up on the economic ladder. So it's really important to, to, to do a lot of work on that. Um, but we are doing more work in the healthcare field, though, right now. I mentioned those certificate of need laws. They're more sophisticated um, uh, cases. They're, frankly, harder to win because judges are going to be a little bit more reluctant to, to, um, to inter what they see as interfering with, with, with the laws here. Um, but, uh, but when you're able to document that this is really about economic protectionism um, and the fact that these certificate of need laws, the federal government has abandoned them. They, they were an effort in the 1970s, kind of a command and control approach to, to curtail costs. The federal government, the Federal Trade Commission has admitted that they don't work. They've advocated for their repeal. They've basically abandoned them, as, 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 but they exist in, in several states right now. And so um, that's one where it, it's, they're tougher cases, but they're really important because of the need to inject competition to try to lower um, uh, the prices and to offer more choices to folks in the healthcare field. One of the things you're seeing in the COVID world is um, a reexamination of a lot of these licensing requirements when there's a desperate need now for healthcare workers. And so you know, a lot of states now are waiving their licensing requirements. You know, it doesn't, the, the, um, being a doctor in Nebraska is not much different than being a doctor in Ohio, but there's a lot of barriers to doing that. And a lot of states now are waiving this if doctors want to, to move to this, even in, a, in a, um, an area where there's obviously um, more of a, uh, a justification for licensing. States are reducing barriers, for instance, to nurse practitioners. I believe there's six states where they previously were not allowed to work in hospitals um, without being under doctor supervision. Now those are, barriers are lowered. And so we're hoping that this reexamination of a lot of these licensing laws that you're seeing now born out of necessity, that some of these reforms stay in place even after the pandemic has passed. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to follow up on what Rick was asking you about, about, about choice of which cases to do. Um, it seems to me that you do stuff not necessarily to change um, occupational licensing for hair braiders, but to sort of highlight um, the catastrophe that's going on throughout across the board, across all industries. And when you pick very stylized cases that are absurd on their face, it forces the government to reconsider their entire programs. I'm thinking particularly with your success with civil forfeiture, um, where Eric Holder, I think, what, basically just at one point after you continued to win, uh, he basically said, you know what, we're going to just change our policies and give up on gaining access to this sort of uh, policy that they were forced to defend in court and then would consistently lose. Can you comment a little bit about that, the general strategy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, our ultimate goal in this as, as public interest lawyers is to set a broad precedent that not only benefits our clients, but can be used by others then too, either to encourage governments not to even go down that path, or if there's litigation to, um, to, uh, uh, to use that precedent to try to break down those barriers. For instance, Tesla has used our, our uh, Monk's case to say that, listen, we want to do direct auto sales to, um, to customers and several states. Now there's still fran exclusive franchise agreements and laws that restrict that, and so um, so that's the goal is to set these broad precedents that um, that that can help 
many, many others that um, that are not our clients, but can but can still benefit um, uh, from these precedents. And then you're right. Um, it, we also turn up the heat on government, and that's one of the reasons why we're so active in the media uh, to try to pressure them to do the right thing. And and we did get those reforms. Um, uh, that were done in the Obama administration. Um, Jeff, Jeff Sessions actually repealed several of those, um, even though several um, conservative senators like uh, Senator Mike Lee have been outspoken opponents of civil forfeiture. Uh, uh, Jeff Sessions was a big fan of civil forfeiture and um, and changed those, um, those policies. That's one of the reasons why um, we advocate not only for the judicial precedents, but say that changes have to be made in the law too. And because policy changes, as you know, can be just changed with the stroke of a pen uh, with with new administrations, and so um, we are we are actively working to to try to change the law at the federal level, and 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 we're hopeful that because there was some criminal justice reform in the last Congress, that um, civil forfeiture could be an issue that um, could unite uh, left and right, and um, and lead to some lead to some changes in an area where people are out, outraged about the abuses. Okay, thank you. Um, our next segment is going to be on gangs and incarceration. Uh, Rick Banks is going to introduce our speakers for this segment. Go ahead, Rick. The next three speakers today are Victor Rios, Connie Rice, and Reginald Dwayne Betts. They represent another only on what happens next uh, event. These are three of the most insightful and courageous voices with regard to race, crime, and punishment. Having any one of them would be noteworthy. Having all three of them at once is, as far as I know, unprecedented. I don't think they've ever shared the stage or the mic, as the case may be. Our first speaker will be Victor Rios. He is a professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara, and he will discuss our society's criminalization of black and Latino youth. Victor came to my attention uh, when he gave a talk at Stanford some years ago. The talk not only informed the audience of faculty, students, and community members, it also captivated them. In part, that was because Victor talked about his path to academia. It was not foreordained that he would become a professor. You see, as a teenager, Victor himself was a gang member. And had it not been for his willingness to accept the help of a teacher who helped him find a job at an auto shop, he might not be here with us today. His academic work now combines his own experiences as a youth with the insights of years of academic study and illuminates the dynamics of gang crime, and even more, the texture of the lives of young men who are caught up in such tragic circumstances. Our second speaker for this segment will be Connie Rice. She is a fierce advocate for racial justice. As a lawyer during her long career, Connie worked for nine years with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She was also a member more recently of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. And she is the co-author of the landmark report that has transformed Los Angeles' approach to gang matters. That report is titled, A Call to Action, The Case for a Comprehensive Public Health Solution to Los Angeles' Gang Homicide Epidemic. Connie first came to my attention many years ago, long before we had ever connected. One of my sisters is a longtime journalist at the Los Angeles Times, and she described to me this lawyer who was not only single-minded in her pursuit of justice, but she was also unwilling to be confined by the conventional approaches to justice. She has both sued the police and worked with the police 
she has pursued approaches to reform that might be viewed as politically liberal, yet also has not hesitated to work with political conservatives. It was only later that I would learn that she is a cousin of my colleague and previous What Happens Next guest, former Secretary of State Condi Rice. Our final speaker is Reginald Dwayne Betts. Dwayne is a graduate of the JD program at Yale Law School. One of his mistakes was going to Yale and not to Stanford. He's also now a PhD student at Yale. I met Dwayne a few years ago as he began to contemplate entering legal academia. As a youth, Dwayne found himself on the wrong side of the law, and he spent time in prison for armed robbery. Since then, he has not only become an astute legal analyst, he is also a poet with three published volumes of poems, and he is the project director of the Million Book Project, which aims to use books to restore hope, dignity, meaning, and purpose to individuals who are incarcerated. You may have seen Dwayne's extraordinary essay in the New York Times Magazine some weeks ago. It was titled, Kamala Harris, Mass Incarceration and Me. He begins with the observation that he has followed Kamala Harris's career closely because she is a prosecutor and he is a felon. What follows is one of the most honest and insightful essays about crime and punishment that I've read. After these three speakers uh, finish, we'll have a Q&A session in which we are delighted to be joined by Stanford Law School graduate and now District Court Judge Gary Feinerman uh, for the Q&A segment. Connie, you get to go first. Actually, I think Victor Rios is going to go first. Oh, Victor, fire okay. away. No problem. Oh, I'm All sorry, right. Victor. Well, you get you. to go first. I'm sorry. My bad. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, I'll just get going here, and uh, thank you all for having me. You know, for over a decade, I've been following young people that get caught up in the criminal justice system, uh, both black and Latino young people. And one thing that I found is that, particularly in California, I've been in the streets of Oakland, California, uh, watching young people grow up in what we call the school-to-prison pipeline. I've been in the streets of Watts, uh, watching young people grow up there, um, facing the wrath of, of mass incarceration, of police brutality. I've been in Ferguson, Missouri, right at the beginning of Black Lives Matter, just weeks after um, in, in, in that instance, the killing of Mike Brown, unarmed young black man by police. Um, and so I guess what, I, what I'm saying here is I've followed ethnographically for years at a time, young people facing um, police harassment, police brutality, and criminalization. And one thing that I've found is that uh, there is a system that I call the youth control complex in place. And it's not just police that criminalizes our young people. It's actually an entire system. It's a complex. It's uh, you know, community centers. It's schools. It's educators. It's um, probation officers. It's businesses, security firms who make money off of people getting criminalized. Uh, so you, know, you have an, an entire enterprise that's criminalizing these individuals. And in the face of Black Lives Matter, in the face of reform efforts, one piece of the conversation I've seen missing has been the Latino question. You see, in America, the way we talk about race is very black and white. It's a binary. And so when we're uh, seeing the news, when we're seeing politicians talk 
about what's happening with race and police, it's really a conversation of uh, African-Americans and police. So it's time to go beyond that because it doesn't benefit African-Americans, it doesn't benefit Latinos to just talk about one group when it comes to policing. We have to change the system together as multiple populations. In California, for example, uh, Latinos are over uh, two times more likely to be killed um, than whites uh, by police. Uh, for African-Americans, it's a, it's a lot more. It's three times more likely uh, to be killed by police uh, than whites. So um, I always say that Latinos are sandwiched in between in terms of the wrath of the punitive state. So from that, we just completed a, a recent publication where we talked about what we call mano suave, mano dura. Uh, and I'll explain that in a minute, but it's a, the form of policing that is taking place right now. In a time of reform, in a time of procedural justice, in a time of community policing, that's the, the, the soft hand, if you will. Mano suave in Spanish means soft hand of policing. It's a great attempt. It's actually making some progress building some trust in communities, but at the end of the day, after doing right-alongs with police and seeing this process happen in vivo, what we also find is that the mano dura, uh, the iron fist, is always there uh, covered by a velvet glove. So in those interactions, any single one police officer can at once be a nice community cop and at the same time within a few minutes time span uh, be brutalizing a black or Latino a young man uh, in this case in, in the study I conducted. So reform and diversity training alone aren't going to cut it. We need to go beyond reform and beyond diversity training in the uh, police force. We have to bring in uh, systematic cultural competency and social justice literacy. We have to change the incentive system. Earlier, we were talking about the incentives of, of, of police being able to take property and keep it and use it to fund their departments. There's so many other incentives that uh, individual police officers and police departments uh, receive for their punitive treatment, for the stop and frisk, for criminalizing communities of color. So those incentives have to change. We have to disincentivize negative police behavior and incentivize those officers that are truly doing the positive work out there in the community. And they're out there. When I work with gang youth, I always ask them, hey, is there any officer you get along with? And in one community, they, they kept saying, yeah, Officer G, Officer G. Said, well, what does Officer G do for you? And they said, well, what he does for me is that he looks out for me, he cuts me breaks, he takes care of me. So let's incentivize Officer G because when I asked the other officers about Officer G, they said, oh, that guy's the hug-a-thug. So he was outcasted for being too community and too soft on the people. And finally, uh, we need review boards with teeth. We need review boards with power to have the power to investigate and discipline police officers, and ultimately allocate and reallocate resources as we see in the cause for defunding the police. Final statement here, one uh, um, former LAPD officer tells me, when I was on the force for nine years, I felt, my whole crew felt we were untouchable. 
because no one held us accountable. So police won't change racist practices unless we make them touchable, unless we hold them accountable. Thank you. Okay, Victor, thank okay. you so much. Uh, Honey Rice? Thanks so much. 50 years ago, LA County declared a war on gangs. But by 2002, the World Health Organization warned that LA's gang homicide epidemic was surging into a regional threat. In 2007, a landmark study done by a team of over 50 PhDs and street HDs showed that after spending $34 billion on the war on gangs, LA County had six times as many gangs and a gang culture so violent that the California Attorney General concluded it was impervious to law enforcement tactics or to general crime declines. With over 9,000 gang killings, 100,000 gunshot victims, and war levels of PTSD in the worst gang zones, the call to action study concluded that LA's war on gangs had failed. It concluded you can't arrest your way out of a violent ideology, and that epidemic threats require all hands on deck, holistic, meaning not mass incarceration, public health approaches that attack the conditions, behaviors, and policies that shield and fuel violent gang control. In short, instead of whack-a-mole arrests of the same gang members, go after the upstream drivers of gang control. With strong backing from law enforcement, leadership, especially from William J. Bratton, LAPD chief at the time, top prosecutors, city controller Laura Chick, and Governor Schwarzenegger, the Call to Action Coalition forced the city to change its strategy from an enforcement mass incarceration war on gangs to a wraparound safety strategy that a neighborhood team uses to reduce violence, trauma, and criminogenic conditions, and also to increase safety and investment in the gang hotspot neighborhoods. The model's rules of the road require stabilized violence. Strategy has to be driven by epidemiologic and other data. You have to make reducing gang membership and crime control an actual job in the city. You have to eliminate the ineffective programs and consolidate their funds for the new strategy. And you have to expend the funds on the wraparound strategy only where the problems are at an epidemic level. Finally, you have to set safety and health goals, not arrest and incarceration goals. You want health goals for increasing public health infrastructure and increasing investments in communities that have been defunded. First big thing that had to happen was we had to create city infrastructure for the model. We created the Office of Gang Reduction and Youth Development, whose job it was to close the entrance ramps and open the exit ramps out of gangs and give kids wraparound uh, alternatives, make the schools safe, make going to school safe. Fund an Urban Peace Institute's Gang Intervention Academy. City of Los Angeles has the Levita Gang Intervention Academy. We're the only city that does, although we're in Chicago trying to help that city develop its academy. Gang Intervention Academy takes former gang members. They go from predator to peacemaker. They are professionally trained violence intervention workers at the end of the curriculum with over 60 subject matter areas. They take the courses with officers and gang members together. You have to fund the local uh, neighborhood action groups who sit at the table with the PhDs, agencies, and other kinds of professionals to draft the strategy for that particular zone, that particular safety zone, to make sure that the conditions are tailored for that circumstance. Finally, the philanthropic sector has got to raise the money for the prevention programs and professional evaluation. The second big thing that had to change was LAPD policing. LAPD Chief Charlie Beck co-created with us a holistic public trust policing that we call community safety partnership policing. It is that these are the only cops 
for whom an arrest is a failure. They are rewarded for building trust, building relationships, and creating partnerships that create these wraparound strategies for safety. Not enforcement, safety. Now, mind you, they will enforce, they will arrest people who are violent. So they reserve their shock and awe gladiator policing for the 2% of gang members who are actually violent. Did it work? Well, after nine years, we've had several evaluations from Cal State LA, UCLA, USC, University of Iowa. Different studies at different times, but all qualitative and qualitative. The studies show that when you have a defined gang reduction and youth development zone and a community safety partnership policing zone that work together and that have used the wraparound safety strategies and gang intervention prevention models for three years or more, one, gang control of public spaces plummets. Gang violence drops faster and more steeply than general declines in crime and does so with far fewer arrests. Zone, zone safety improves more and stays longer. Criminogenic conditions recede. And residents of public housing projects, where this model was first uh, pioneered, report trust with community safety partnership officers from LAPD, but not other LAPD police officers. You have higher crime clearance rates, and astoundingly, evaluations of professionally trained gang interventionists showed their work produced a 95% reduction in retaliation shootings, saved LA County over $120 million in averted homicides over a two-year period, and eliminated shooting sprees on hospitals and ambulances. LAPD chiefs Bratton, Beck, and Moore agree the model worked, and LAPD, as a result, just set up the only full policing bureau for community safety and partnership. Sustainability right now is hanging by a thread because of the pandemic. The model needs uh, reinforcement. Four conclusions from this experience. Unstrategic war is a counterproductive approach for solving complex problems that pose epidemic threats like epidemic gang violence, homelessness, terrorism, or climate crisis. Two, complex problems that have morphed into epidemic threats require comprehensive long-term cross-sector cooperation by the whole of government, academia, philanthropy, and society. Third, this kind of all-hands-on-deck problem-solving requires extraordinary mission-oriented leadership from the worlds of police, gangs, government, public health, education, philanthropy, academe, and business. And fourth, solving complex threats requires sustaining unlikely alliances and forcing politicians to accept data-driven long-term solutions that they can't take a bow for. Thank you. Wow, that was fabulous. Um, we will have lots of questions. Uh, Dwayne Betts. Yeah, thank everybody for listening. And, um, and yeah, that was actually fabulous. I think uh, one of the things that I'll start with is, um, you know, when Bill Withers sung at Carnegie Hall, and I think it was 74, and he was introducing a song, I Can't Write Left-Handed. Um, one of the things that's stunning about it is he talks about how he when he was young, he wasn't really political and how a lot of people write songs about the war and they write about politics and how they imagine the world should be. And uh, he was thinking about himself when he was 17 going to Guam and how he was uh, a lot like the young man he had talked to who had came from Vietnam, which is to say that they uh, was law-abiding and they kind of went because somebody told him to go. And um, then he goes, and I can't write left-handed. And the piece is really exploring, you know, his own, the soldier's struggle with what it meant for him to be caught up in a war like that. And I wrote the piece for the New York Times. I found that um, in my own life, you know, I've been caught between these poles. 
I went to prison when I was 16 for carjacking, and this was in uh, 1996. And at the time, the sort of political moment said that teenagers, you know, John DeLulio piece came out in 1995 in the standard, and they said that it was a, a new era of violence that was coming to the fore, and we were super predators. And I remember being called a minister society, and I was facing life in prison for a crime that I committed, but the name of it, the very idea of it was an invention of a policymaker. You know, it's no such thing as carjacking. It doesn't actually convey something that specifically happens. I just robbed somebody, and I robbed them for a gun. But the difference between having an armed robbery was a, a sentence of 5 to 40, and having carjacking meant that I faced life. And um, I remember this. And I remember when we were locked up, you know, teenagers having 30, 40, 50 year sentences. I specifically remember writing to the ACLU for a friend of mine, and we were making an argument that he had a 63 year sentence in a state that didn't have parole for a crime that wasn't a rape, wasn't a murder, and it wasn't even a robbery. And I remember the ACLU writing his back saying that um, that wasn't one of their policy concerns. And now you fast forward to 2005, and, and, and you have Roper decided in 2010, you have Graham decided, and you had a whole political landscape changing. And the landscape, the, the, the change in the landscape of the, of the politics, you know, brings back parole and makes people look at that 16-year-old slightly differently. But I think the way that we look at him is only slightly differently. And when I was writing the New York Times piece about Kamala Harris, like that became crucially important for me because I recognized that if the way we think about this issue is based on the whims of the moment, then we will never get down to, to figuring out what the ultimate question really is. And, you know, one of the things yeah, I, I particularly find fascinating is that Scholarship forces you to get further and further away from the experiences of somebody who is suffering under the weight of incarceration or under the weight of violence. And my main goal in the New York Times piece was to make an argument that we can't fully address mass incarceration without contemplating how as a society we want to respond to violence. And so working on the piece, I'll just talk about um, like sort of three conclusions that I tried to draw and one failed conclusion. The first is that um, I followed Senator Harris all around the country and I talked to, you know, dozens of prosecutors about the work that prosecutors do. And, and I should back this up and just say that, you know, a couple years ago, I got um, appointed to this commission in Connecticut where um, Connecticut is the only state in the country that highest prosecutors. And so I'm on a commission with, with five other people, and we hire all their prosecutors in Connecticut. So we hired the line prosecutors, and then we rehired an equivalent of a district attorney. Um, that sort of gets televised and it's a public hearing. So that's sort of the backdrop of the conversation. But when I talk to prosecutors all across the country, and when I talk to all people all over the country about the work of prosecutors, the first thing I realized is that um, it's really opaque. Even in our interviews, it was it was hard to nail down what prosecutors actually do on a case-by-case -case basis. And in my work as a public defender, and I just worked as a public defender for a year, I knew that it was really varied. 
you know, I knew I got the kind of outcomes that will bother many people in the public if they, if they like knew the details. That I worked on cases where it was robberies with a gun, and we worked out deals where, you know, the prosecutor accepted a plea for a lesser or included offense, and there was no jail time. And I knew that the public would resent those those plea agreements, but I thought it was justice. The prosecutor thought it was justice because, you know, we all had this this notion that incarceration should only should only be used in the most extreme of circumstances. But the tension in that came up when we were dealing with actual violence. And so in a piece, I was trying to, one, grapple with the notion that we actually don't know what prosecutors do. And then, two, grapple with the notion that there are instances where it's a kind of violence that, like, demands a response. And maybe the response it demands is, is prison, and maybe the response it demands is prison for a long time. And, uh, and then I'll just add two more points. Now, in coming to this, I was writing about my mom. And... Um, you know, you go to prison, everybody I was in prison with, most of us had committed violent crimes. And so sometimes I listen to the conversations about reform and how we should deal with mass incarceration. And when it completely ignores violent crime, I wonder if the conversation is really about getting people I know free or if it's about having a, a conversation that's more palatable to the public and a more effective way of dealing with the 15, 20% of people who locked up from state to state for nonviolent crimes. But anyway... Um, and, and, and my mom got assaulted the year that I got locked up. And I spent this decade in prison really thinking about how the system was onerous and burdensome. And I came home, and the first day I came home, my mom tells me this horrible thing that happened, and it made me have to, like, think seriously about what that meant for how I thought about justice. And I couldn't. I sort of just set it to the side. And... um. And it was interesting because I set it to the side in the same way that I was forced to set it to the side, my own violence and my advocacy work. And so writing a piece was the first time that I got a chance to sort of try to contemplate what it meant to, to want somebody in prison. And in fact, you know, the person took a plea bargain and, and, and got sentenced to a, um, like a 20-year sentence and then got paroled. And because they took a plea bargain, my family never really found out um, they weren't included amongst the victims because the crown got no process for my mom, and it was like really, really complicated. But the point was that the whole experience and ordeal taught us how the system wasn't effective. But it wasn't just ineffective because people went to prison. It was also ineffective because the victims didn't have a sense of being safe and a sense of community. And then the last thing I would just mention about the piece before I stop talking is um. One of the tragedies, though, is what I was trying to point out and how I was trying to make it complicated is that while acknowledging the violence that my mom suffered, I was also trying to acknowledge that it was people in prison who I knew should be out. And I was talking about friends of mine who, you know, had gotten locked up when they were children, some for murder, some for robbery, but they had did 20 and 30 years. And so in trying to work through this aspect of the piece where I knew that essentially, and I, mean, I knew who my audience was. You know, my audience was in some ways like the parole board who would review these cases. I knew that I was making an argument for friends, but I was trying to do it in a way that um, honored and, and, and acknowledged the fact that, like, many people probably wouldn't even want them to be free in the same way I probably wouldn't want the person to break my mom to be free. And, and you know, 
at the end of the day, maybe this is why I'm not uh, academic and why the thing I do is, 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 is kind of different because um, I was supposed to have a conclusion at the end. I was supposed to have an argument I was making about what the system was supposed to look like. But by the end of the piece, what I concluded is that the way in which we think about people who are incarcerated and whether they should be or shouldn't be is like so tied into how much we know about them. And, um, you know, and I advocated for my friends because I know them and I advocate for my clients because I get to know them. And, and you know, for me that felt sort of deeply unsatisfying, but it was, uh, it was, it was sadly the place where I landed. Now I'm, I'm going to tell you one more story before I finish this actually because I'm completely discombobulated in a way and it's, and it's related. I, um, you know, I wrote the piece and I, and I talked about a friend of mine named Juvie. It was really hard to write a piece for the Times and not put somebody's real name because they're real serious about having you put a person's real name. But since he was only mentioned in a passing sentence, I didn't have to put his real name. And uh, he got locked up when he was 17 and he did 26 years in prison. He's one of the first people that I represented on parole. And I think about how my conversations with him overlap all of the conversations that I've heard thus far, um, particularly because he came home and he wanted to get a barber license and he struggled with how he would get, how he would able to be, how he would able to get, how he would be able to get licensed. And the fact that he needed to accumulate like a thousand hours of haircutting to get licensed and all of the hours he spent as a barber in prison, in fact, didn't count. But what I wanted to mention is that, um, you know, he did 26 years in prison. And, and, and this is the kind of person I think who doesn't frequently come up in these conversations. He did 26 years, he was like 46 years old. For all intents and purposes, people thought he was healthy. He got released last December. And then last week, you know, he had a emergency surgery because he had, a, he had diabetes and he didn't know. So he did 26 years in prison, didn't know he had diabetes, came home, was home for just like 11 months, had emergency surgery and then like died. And and I think about his story in the context of Bill Withers saying I can't write left-handed and telling a story of the soldier. You know, when we think about incarceration, it often gets elevated to a level that obscures what people struggle with on the ground. And um and anyway, I'll just I'll just end and I'll just end there. Wow. Um thank you, Dwayne. So let me let me start with just a question for for everyone, which is, um, you know, when we think about youth who get enmeshed in the in the criminal justice system uh, and on the wrong side of the law, what is it that people need to understand but don't understand or misunderstand about their lives uh, and about the the forces and factors uh, that result uh, in their being criminalized? Uh, Victor, you, we can just go on order. Victor, Connie, and Dwayne, if you have observations about that. Yeah, well, first of all, Dwayne, I've been following you. I know uh, we've been in communication at some point. I just wanted to tell you uh, I truly respect that journey you've been on and the work you do for justice. And Connie, thank you so much for the work you do. Um, it, it really inspires me. And, and yeah, it, you know, um, there has to be a way in which we not only understand their stories, uh, but do something that's policy and program-based on their stories. In other words, their stories are actually the solution. And that's my entire framework. So let's take, for example, 
LA County uh, now has pre-adjudication diversion programs. So essentially when an officer goes out now and um, encounters a youth that committed a crime, their, their job now is actually to find a diversion program for them um, before even citing them. Because we know the research shows of my research, everyone else's research shows that when you have um, a young person that ends up with a ticket, with a citation, with a court appearance, that that pretty much jump starts the school prison pipeline. Uh, so in this case, they get diverted before they get adjudicated, and it's a different experience. Um, Connie had a great word. She said the street HDs, right? There's PhDs and there's, there's street HDs. The, I call them the BTDTs, the been there, done that. And those are the individuals like that gang academy, right, where they've been there, they've done that, they go to this academy, and they're ready to do diversion. They're ready to keep these youngsters out of that school to prison pipeline. So not just understand, that's a pity framework, that's a, a sympathy framework, but embrace their stories of resilience, of grit, and then the new framework I'm working on, I call it a prosperity framework. So now let's not just expect them to have resilience and grit. You know, you survived 20 years, and then you got diabetes, and you got out, you, you know, you're resilient. Well, guess what? No, we have to give you the tools to actually thrive in the society. We have to give you the tools to prosper. So it's not just about teaching them through their story to be resilient, but also providing them the resources to be prosperous in our society. And I would, I would add, this is Connie Rice, um, I, I would add to, to uh, my co-speakers, uh, individual, they're, they're focusing on a, the most important part of the spectrum, which is the individual experience. And the children born into these neighborhoods, I, I, I naturally focus on the systemic. So if you, it, it's a spectrum, it's a horizontal spectrum. Um, the work that, that people like me do doesn't mean anything if it doesn't change the lives and experiences that, that my co-speakers are, are talking about. So when you ask what's the difference for a child born in these neighborhoods, it's the fact that they're born in that neighborhood. I go out and look at that system, that ecosystem, at, for the explanations as to why you have incarceration rates for children, nine prisons for children in L.A. County, that ha more than half of which have been closed now, but the prison-to-pipeline um, fact, that fact is orchestrated by a policy. That policy is mass incarceration. And that, that mass incarceration policy embodies assumptions and attitudes about neighborhoods and communities that are never meant to get on the right side of the thin blue line. For people like me who are privileged, we get concierge safety. In the neighborhoods that we're discussing, the hot zones, the gang hot zones, the trauma zones, Rand did a study of 4,000 fifth graders and third graders in LA Unified, very poor areas, Pacoima, East LA, Watts, LA, very poor areas. It, it found that in these areas, almost 40% of the children suffer from war, civil war levels of post-traumatic stress. Guess what? The cops who are gang officers in those regions for more than two years also have civil war levels of stress, post-traumatic stress, and teachers do too. So you're talking about very unhealthy ecosystems, no playgrounds, no after-school activities, 
most public spaces are controlled by gang members who, who charge all kinds of taxes and stuff. It's it's out-of-control environment where children cannot thrive. And the legal standard for children is failure to thrive. Well, the children in these neighborhoods are failing to survive. And we look the other way. We, the larger body politic, we, the political class, we think it's okay. It's built in. It's assumed. So all of the racial disparities in sentencing and charging and stopping and in, in putting people into that mass incarceration machinery, it starts with the profiling of the neighborhood. And the profiling of the neighborhood is based on class and race compounded. doesn't mean there aren't bad yeah. apples. It doesn't mean community members aren't responsible for their behavior. They are. What I'm saying is that we need to understand that until you unplug the structural drivers of the, of the massive policy and government failures and behavior and culture failures in these neighborhoods, you can't rewire it to have a healthier environment that produces children who don't even think about whether they're going to prison. Right now, you go to Jordan Downs, go to Nickerson Gardens Housing Project. Economist Raj Chetty from Harvard established that if you're a black man between the ages of 18 and 24 and you live in Nickerson Gardens Housing Project in Watts, every time you step out of your unit on any given day, you face a 45% chance of going to jail. Not of being stopped, of going to jail. That's what mass incarceration's extreme impact has produced. It is both counterproductive, it is extremely wasteful and expensive, and it destroys lives. The most profound statement I've ever heard a police officer make, the former chief of LAPD, and he said, Connie, I changed because I realized that search and destroy policing, that's what he called his gang policing. Those aren't my words. That's the, those are the words of an LAPD chief. He said, Search and destroy policing, I finally realize, doesn't just destroy the community, it destroys you, the cop. So we have a stuck-on-stupid, extremely destructive public policy in crime control, violence control, and it's really a containment suppression system that we inherited from plantation policing. And so until that mission changes, until the incentives change, until the rewards you can reward cops for locking every kid in baggy pants up in a gang neighborhood where kids have to join the gang to survive. Or you can flip the switch, flip the paradigm, and have everybody rowing in the boat together to make a healthier community, which does not involve mass incarceration. Do you get the violent people out of a neighborhood? Absolutely. Lock them up. If you commit violence or you're predatory, you've got to go. And what I'm talking about is the 70% of people in our state prisons who are in there for nonviolent drug crimes and mental health problems. So we have so, a paradigm problem, and we need to understand that pipeline is something we've created. So I, I agree with so much. Can of I ask that. a I question? Wanted... Me or Connie? Oh, oh no, I was going to ask to, 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 to both of you. I just heard two different – this is Robin, one of the earlier speakers. I heard two different numbers. I think I heard the – the last speaker say a number like 15% were the nonviolent, and now I just heard a number of 70%. Um, yeah, that's what I was I going to push back to... against. Well, in, in, in California state prisons, the majority of the people that are in there for, for nonviolent crimes, status crimes, gang enhancements, um, uh, drug crimes, a lot of drug crimes, personal use drug crimes. 
And and that's part of our problem is we've criminalized a lot of health problems, mental health problems, drug problems, instead of, well, for example, the difference in, in the response to the crack epidemic versus the opioid epidemic. That's very clear. So I don't... So I don't have California numbers, and I will have to look up California numbers, but I do find, and this is one of the fundamental tensions in my piece. I was locked up from 1996 to 2004. I was locked up with a lot of people in state prisons, and I don't pretend that my own experience is empirical, but most of the people I was around were locked up for violent crimes, myself included. Um, now, if you say arrest, then I think the number of people who were arrested um, you know, for nonviolent crimes might balloon past the number of people who are incarcerated. But if you look at the prison policy initiatives data, you know, they argue that if you just look at the whole pie for people currently incarcerated, the numbers of people incarcerated for violence dwarf those incarcerated for nonviolence. It's 1.3 million people in state prisons, 700,000 locked up for violence, 200,000 locked up for property, another 190 for drugs. And, and and maybe we could have arguments about whether or not burglary is violent. Some people say it is, some people say it isn't. But I think that that's a fundamental tension in thinking about this problem, because frankly, once you start to create that dichotomy between the violence and, and violent and nonviolent, then the, the way in which we treat people who have committed violent crimes is is almost justified. And then and then the policymakers ignore the civil war level amount of stress and anxiety that young people deal with. And I, and I would argue that, you know, one of the things that we need to do is take more account into that, but actually have a robust conversation about what should punishment look like and what is, like, adequate and responsible punishment. We avoid that question by just imagining that it's this huge pie of people who are locked up undeservedly. You know, when, in fact, I think that it, you shoot somebody, you rob somebody, you burglarize a home, even if you start asking people how many stolen cars should, should we deal with, should we accept, you start to get really squishy answers. I mean, I listen to, um, and, 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 and Chess is great, but I listen to Chester Boondin talking about it, and he created the same dichotomy to think about how they were going to deal with prosecutions for car thefts. He said it's some people who steal cars because they're homeless or they're just kids and joyriding, and we shouldn't be locking those people up. But it's some people who are, like a part of hardcore gangs and, 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 and caught theft rings, and they should be getting prosecuted. And the fact is, it is almost impossible to disentangle those two groups, and it's almost impossible to disentangle who is the person with a robbery charge who is incorrigible from the person who is just like me. And, and so what I find most troubling is that at some point the conversation, you get what just now happened. Two people say different things, and what I say about rape, violence, robbery, murder does not lead to reform. It doesn't lead to people saying abolish prisons. And so people won't have that conversation. You know, it's just much more convenient to talk about drugs and property crimes. And so I'm not sure, uh, Connie, where you get your numbers from, and I don't distrust your numbers, but I think largely across this country, in state prisons, the majority of people actually are locked up for committing violent crimes, not for committing um, nonviolent crimes and drug offenses. You know, the, the larger point is we have a mass incarceration system. And it needs to be unraveled. We need something that's more productive. We need something that isn't as destructive. And that requires changing the policing, changing the conditions on the ground, changing the strategies to the wraparound public health strategies. doesn't mean you don't go after predation and violence. You do. That's what you do the arrests for. That's what you do the imprisonment for. 
but you have to go after the conditions that are if you if if you believe the statistic for for the Nickerson Gardens housing project is is that Raj Chetty has documented it from here to you know Sunday um and and you can't look at that number and think that that's okay if that's your policy outcome i can't agree with those policies so we have created a machine a juggernaut and behind it are a lot of the assumptions about uh, uh, African-American danger uh, and a lot of the tropes of needing to contain and suppress the violence and the misery in certain neighborhoods. That's the strategy. It's called containment suppression policing for a reason. So I'm suggesting that everything from our approach to, to the conditions in these neighborhoods, what, what opportunities are available to these kids, what child care is available for, the, for children who are poor, both rurally, rural and urban communities, that infrastructure, the public health infrastructure that is not there, we don't have the soil in which children can th survive and thrive. We're barely ha letting them survive. So I'm talking about putting the rungs and the upward mobility ladder back in the ladder. We've spent the last 40 years taking them out. We've got a lot of support for uh, uh, subsidies and support and bailouts for uh, large corporations and defense contractors. It's where our public money is. And we need to think about our priorities to undo this system that I think all of the speakers on this call are saying is dysfunctional, is unproductive, and has destroyed too much. This is Gary Feinberg. I, I could pick up on that. Clarify a little bit about what's been said here, because you know it's important to clarify for a lay audience that you know we're talking about Dwayne's numbers are are coming from prisons. Uh, but there's a total number of people that are incarcerated. And if you look at those numbers, um, you know, I would, I would stand my ground and say a quarter of the people incarcerated out of all people incarcerated in this country are there for violent crimes, which, le which leave three quarters of people uh, there for nonviolent crime, right? And some of them, it's debatable, like 20% of that, debatable whether a robbery is a violent crime or not. So I want to clarify that because what it does, and I agree with Dwayne's point, we, we have to make sure that in this effort of reform, we're not just um, addressing one part of the system and not the other. And that's what do we do with folks, you know, the big sharks, you know, there's, there's an analogy I make in my book, Punish, where I say, you know, uh, the, uh, the kids would say this to me, they said, they say, you know, the police are so busy, busy catching the little fish, they, they like, they let the shark get away. And the shark was a predatory guy that police knew they were there, community knew they were there, but somehow that predatory guy was not addressed. You know, and that's the guy that ends up in and out sometimes, but no one's doing anything about that guy because it's hard to even conceive a program. So one of the things that my students and I have been doing, we've actually taken, taken serious this idea of abolition and, and try, tried to figure out measures for how abolition might work in terms of transformative justice, not restorative justice, but transformative justice. And that's just some of the points Connie is making. I don't know if she would frame it in this way, but in terms of changing entire ecosystems, in terms of addressing those violent offenders, uh, bringing them into conversations. And then, of course, the debate is still there. How much time do they do? Where do they get in? All of that stuff. But, but all to, to make it a, a, a systematic wide solution 
rather than just addressing, say, uh, those kids that are in and out for petty crime. And, and by the way, we're dichotomizing human behavior. You're either good or bad. And that was, Dwayne and I had a big debate about a, a recent book. Not, we didn't have a debate. We had a debate with the author because that author, Alice Goffman, was dichotomizing behavior of black males in Philadelphia. They are, they're either good or bad. And so uh, all to say that, you know, when you dichotomize human behavior, you don't look at the behavior in a spectrum at any given point, right? I, I know when I was on the streets, I know that a lot of my family and, and peers that were on the streets and are still on the streets, they can be these incredible supporters of justice and change and at the same time get caught up in the wrong moment where they're committing a violent crime. And so how do you address that behavior within one individual? I think that's where the transformative justice piece and, dare I say, taking serious some of these pushes for abolitionism um, and, and finding measures and policies that allow for that uh, kind of abolition that, 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 that is pragmatic, of, of course. Well, I, I don't know, you know that Judge there's, there's any way to do pragmatic abolition. I think that the model that we know works and has been evaluated has been tried in L.A., I have represented people in Watts and poor areas for years. I don't live there. I don't live their lives. But I've never had a client or any group ask me to eliminate the police. They want police who police humanely, compassionately, and productively and help them with their lives and help them with the conditions in their communities. That's what they've asked for. And the transformation comes not just in the police but also in the community. And there's a truth and reconciliation process. And there are resources that are put together to a strategy that is aimed at changing that neighborhood's ecosystem, getting resilience and all of the assets reinforced, and taking out the crimogenic conditions and, and, and physical structures that actually shield gang violence and other kinds of violence, domestic violence and other kinds of violence. So we're talking about building a healthy community. And policing is a part of that. But I think, I think the discussion, if you don't look at the systems, if you don't look at the policies, yes, one-on-one -on -one is very, very important. The individual experience is extremely important. But you can't get transformative just doing one at a time. And so when you look at the system of policing, you look at the court system, all of those systems have to be reconfigured to deliver a different outcome, a different product, a different result. And if that result... Or is, is set for violence reduction. You have to start with the reductions, all the way down to a all the way over to a healthy community, and you get all of the agencies, all of academia, all of government, all of society, all of the neighborhoods together, rowing in the boat in the same way to achieve a healthier, nonviolent uh, ecosystem with policing that doesn't destroy the community but actually helps communities build themselves up. Then you've got something. And I think that the CSP evaluations and the grid evaluations and this wraparound strategy that we came up with 14 years ago in L.A., we've documented that it works. People can't seem to hear the solution because we're so busy fighting. And yeah, Connie, let me, let me ask you a question. This is Rick Banks. Let me ask you a question about that because you, you – I mean, this is an extraordinary program. I, I think we all uh, agree that the experiment, if you will, with mass incarceration has been a disaster, and we need to find a different way to go. But you started this program, as you just said, 14 years ago. It's been documented to be successful. Uh, why has this not spread to cities throughout the nation, and how do we get it to be adopted? Because the entrenched interests 
don't lie with changing the current system. The police chiefs like this system, but the rank and file don't. They call it women's policing. Because uh, somebody said the soft hand as opposed to the iron hand, um, you know, they, they, they consider it women's police. And, and the community safety partner police are disproportionately women of color uh, they, who grew up in these communities and speak the languages and, and escaped the traps, but also know that they need to go back and, and re-engineer a fairer system. So, uh, number one, the incentives are not there. The money is not is not in shutting down prisons and redeploying police for just violent stuff. When we try, for example, to get first responders from mental health and public health and, and other kinds of counseling and nurses and social workers, we wanted teams. Charlie Beck said, give me a team of first responders and I'll give you an officer to back them up. We won't even be on the scene. You call us if there's a problem. Deal with the homeless who are having a schizophrenic, uh, and have lost their medicine for schizophrenia. Don't send a cop for that. Send the mental health workers. Well, the unions grieved because the, men, the workers in the county agencies didn't want to work after five. Well, if you're a first responder, you have to respond at two in the morning. So there, there are a lot, there's a lot of, it's not just the police, it's all of these other agencies, public health, mental health, probation, you know, all of these agencies and government with the civic organizations, with academe, they've got to design a system that treats the, the harsher portions of policing and makes it work better. So it hasn't caught on because it's not in anybody's interest. People want to fight their fights and they want to hold on to their perks and their power. And so when you talk about you talk about this with correction officers, they say you're nuts. Probation says, I already do my job automated, I don't want to have to do any more. Police say, no, you're taking, you know, you know, no, uh, we don't want to do this, it's women's policing. So there are a lot of things about it. It's, it's threatening. It's threatening to the macho uh, uh, depiction of Dirty Harry and you know, the, 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 the sort of Rambo cop, the gladiator cop. It's very threatening. And so uh, also, also it requires a complete refiguration of the money. That's where you get, the, the, you get stuck because nobody – right now in LAPD, officers work three days a week. A lot of officers are on 312 schedules, about 40% are on 312, and only 5% of them are deployed at any one time, yet they want to keep hiring more and more. Well, no. You have to change how the police department operates. You have to change the gang culture, which is what gang intervention is about, not only reducing violence, but also about transforming gang culture into something that's not destructive. Anyway, um, I, I just think it's harder for people, it's easier for people to talk about individuals. It's much more compelling. It's much more interesting than talking about systems and the kinds of things you have to rewire to re-engineer an entirely new system. People kind of shut down when stuff gets big. Uh, Judge Gary uh, Feinerman has a question. How sure. Gary the, the, the question is, is primarily for Duane, but I'd love to hear Victor and Connie's thoughts if they care to um, chime in. So Duane, in your, in your New York Times Magazine piece, you address the paradox or, or might be called the bitter irony that communities of color are over-policed and over-incarcerated, but at the same time, they're underprotected uh, by the police and the criminal justice system. And, and in the piece, and this afternoon, you spoke very movingly uh, about your own personal struggle uh, with that paradox. So, so my, my question is, how would you advise a sentencing judge who, who has before him or her um, a convicted defendant uh, to think about 
those countervailing considerations, particularly when faced with a defendant convicted of a violent crime. Yeah, I think that that brings to what I wanted to mention before. I actually don't think we're obsessed with things on an individual level. It, it, it seems that way, but we actually don't look at people as individuals. And a lot of a lot of the conversation, even this conversation, has moved towards categorizing people as like violent or nonviolent. And so, even if the numbers that I suggested just represent a quarter, which which I dispute, because you know you have a lot of people in the county jails who haven't been um, convicted yet. But I'm just focusing on focusing on state prisons. Just take that 700,000 people out of the 1,300 that's in state prisons. Each of them went in front of a judge, and they were convicted or they pled guilty to a violent crime. And the question is, how should the judge consider who they are as a discrete individual? And we don't have a system that is motivated towards um, developing an account for who they are. I went in front of a judge, you know, 16 years old, skipped 12th grade, graduated from high school, and done all kinds of like small things in my life that was horrific and some things that were pretty decent and I was a halfway decent student, but there was no mechanism to get that information in front of a judge. And part of it was because I was in a system that was, you know, that was um, antagonistic. I mean, the prosecutor was against the defense attorney, the defense attorney was against the prosecutor and, and the end goal was not the truth. Moreover, I think um, the judge is forced to make a decision in a moment, and they're forced to make a decision as if they could predict the future when they can't. And frequently, these systems don't have a space in which it allows you to reflect and say, who will you be five years from now? Can I see you again five years from now? So yeah, I focus deeply and intensely on individuals because that lets me see how the system is broken down. I represent people on parole who have done 20 and 25 years in state prison who are radically different people. And I see how intensely against um, release the parole board frequently is because they don't know how to account for the fact that you committed a murder and 25 years later you're a different person. But if they let you go, they fear you'll do something else. They just don't know how to account for that, and they're not empowered to account for that. So I would argue that that we just need a a, a better series of mechanisms and strategies that allows something that's more akin to what happens on the back end to happen on the front end. First of all, even for people who commit violent crimes because it seems to be a sort of consensus that if you murder somebody, you should get just get thrown away. Or if you get a robbery, you should just get thrown away. When I, I just think that's that's not the reality. And I should say though, the other great thing that Connie said was resources, resources, resources. Frequently you have people that get out of prison and, and, and they get asked to be on panels and they get asked to be violence preventers and they don't get paid for it. So they can't support their family, they can't support themselves, and they actually want to have a hand in improving and changing their community, but they don't have the resources to do it. But the main point, I think, in terms of how to address the, the time in which an individual who committed a crime is in front of a judge, and a judge has the opportunity to at least try to do some modicum of protection of a community in that case, how can they imagine mercy when they feel like they might be abdicating their duty to show mercy? I think that they could imagine mercy if we do a better habit of training defense attorneys to do a more robust presentation of who the individual is before the judge. I mean, the judge doesn't even get a chance to talk to the defendant, you know, even before they sentence them to 30 or 40, 50 years. They, they aren't motivated to, um, to look at them as a whole person. They're motivated to look at them as a crime. And it has to be something that changes the motivation for the decision that gets made at sentencing. And I think, you know, California is one of the, one of the places that have rollback um, parole for younger and younger people. Virginia just brought back parole for people who got locked up as teenagers 
but it's, they still haven't trained the parole board on how to think about what it means to serve 20 years in prison. And so you just still had this, this, this point where the policy changes lag behind the actual personal um, decision-making tools that are needed to, to make merciful decisions. Really, uh, just a quick point I want to make to follow up on Dwayne's point here that, you know, folks that have done 20 years and they were in for violent crimes, you know, places like California where we are, you know, hitting sort of a decarceration starting point where folks are, you know, re being released in, in mass numbers and they're coming out with little resources. And so it's important to think about reentry. As, a, as the next step and the next sh show, maybe the next episode, because reentry is so important. Parole boards, probation officers, um, it's, it's also, we call it, uh, my student and I, we call it the reentry industrial complex. Uh, and, uh, huge corporations actually sell a reentry curriculum to the state of California. Um, and a lot of my students have shown me this because a lot of my students are former uh, inmates. And now they're, you know, University of California students. And anyway, long story short is that uh, we have to figure out a way to provide resources to folks that have been in there for a long time that come out and, 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 and give them that dignity and that ability to make a living for themselves and their families. All right, this is the part of the show where we wrap things up. And uh, I like to end with notes of optimism. Generally, we get, uh, because of COVID, into a very pessimistic and negative uh, perspective, but I think it's important for all of us to think about hope and optimism. And I'm going to go around and ask each speaker uh, to end on a, a one-minute note of optimism, and I'm going to go in uh, order of uh, presenters. Uh, Robin Greenwood, I'm going to start with you. Robin, uh, what would you uh, tell our audience that you're optimistic about? Um. I am very optimistic about um, the recovery in the following sense. When businesses started shutting down in the COVID economy, it was very painful, and many of us, and uh, for, this is something that I was wrong about, were particularly worried about what economists call scarring, which is the businesses not being able to restart. And while I think some of those things are still going to play out, um, I think that the economy has proved uh, much more resilient in terms of business formation and also the cost of businesses shutting down uh, than I would have expected, and that makes me hopeful for the future. Yeah, I agree. It, it, I find our labor market incredibly impressively resilient. Um, okay, Scott Bullock. I'll mention one thing that it, it touches on some of the things that I was speaking of and some of the last speakers were as well. And uh, I think one optimistic thing coming out of the election was just the complete collapse in public support for the war on drugs. And that's something that is really significant given uh, what happened in the, in the 1980s and onward. And uh, every drug reform measure that was on the ballot, every uh, drug decrim bill, every marijuana legalization or, or medical marijuana initiative that was on won and one by uh, handy margins. So that's something where you're just getting uh, a moment where the public has completely rethought this, and that provides an opportunity for everyone to make um, changes to the, uh, to the legacy of, of, of the war on drugs in, in, in so many areas. 
Great, Victor Rios. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I'm optimistic about uh, the young people uh, that are resisting Black Lives Matter and uh, other groups that have gotten together to res resist uh, police brutality, resist mass incarceration, calls for defunding uh, the police. And of course, that's controversial, but looking at creative ways in which you, you do reorganize uh, these systems so that they better serve communities. Connie? I'm cautiously optimistic. Maybe I should say my optimism is, is in suspense, uh, hoping that the pandemic's effect of lifting the veil on the grotesque inequities in public health infrastructure, in access to basic clinical health um, for, for the folks at the, below the 20 percentile, the bottom percentiles. Uh, our poorest folks have dropped through the floor, and this pandemic, once we look at what's happened, I think is going to see catastrophic impact. And maybe it's so big this time that the politicians and policymakers will have to start governing with policies that lift from the very bottom of the floor, lift everybody at the bottom of the well up, as opposed to starting with the middle class. The second thing is I agree with, with Dr. Rios that that uh, uh, the Dreamers, Black Lives Matter, the Parkland shooters, the young people. My dad belonged to the greatest generation. I think boomers are the greediest generation. And I think the young, younger generations, Gen X, Millennials, and Z, and, and all the other groups, I don't even know the names of the labels that have been applied to them, they're, they're awakening. And I think that they're going to be able to take on these crises that, that the older folks have, have accelerated. So I'm hopeful about that, um, and I'm just relieved. I'm not hopeful, but I'm relieved that we get a break from the march toward autocracy, and maybe we can actually get back on the track of trying to achieve a democracy out of this oligarchy that we have right now. Dwayne? Yeah, I, I'll say, um, you know, I thought in my Kamala Harris piece that uh, I am a felon, and the reason is because my friends who are currently incarcerated and the people who I don't know who had the same kind of violent crimes that I have, they, they're still in prison and they don't have the degrees behind their name that allow them to demand that they be called something else. And, and I'm trying to find ways to keep connected to them. And, and I would say that one thing that um, I think shows promise is, you know, over the past year, I've been able to get, well, when Virginia took the house a few years ago, that's why, you know, it wasn't, it was the protest, but the real thing that changed the law in Virginia, the state law that allowed additional close to a thousand people to be eligible for release who had who had done 10, 15, 20 years in prison, 30 years in prison, it was that the Virginia legislature was taken over by Democrats, both the House and the Senate, and they passed a couple of bills that brought parole back. And it took 25 years, a quarter century to do that. So I am excited by the fact that, you know, to push to change the electoral map, to push to get new people in office has led to some policy changes. And then on the back end, those policy changes have led to the parole board in Virginia, just like the parole board in California, to do some things on, on I believe, as a person that was in prison on a particularly individual level that we starved for as, as we died in prison, as we died when, when this wasn't an issue that people discussed. I am excited that you have more people working on our cases, working on those cases, and getting people out of prison so they could come out here and um and do the kind of work that we've discussed, but also to just just live a life as a free person. I'm I'm excited to see that happening and to see it continue to happen. Thank you. 
All right, uh, that ends uh, today's session. I want to make a plug for our What Happens Next uh, next next Sunday. Uh, we're going to handle two topics. Uh, one is the polling failure of the presidential and congressional elections of 2020. We have Eric Kaufman from the University of London who will speak about the shy Trump voter. Douglas Massey will discuss sampling errors and how we'd sample uh, the wrong problem when uh, no one answers the phone anymore. Andrew Gelman from Columbia will discuss the statistical analysis of polling. And Joseph Campbell will talk about the history of polling failures uh, since 1936. Um, our second session is on constitutional law. We have the former dean of Stanford Law School, Larry Kramer, Harvard Law Professor uh, Mark Tushnet, uh, and Ganesh Sidraman, who was um, Eliz uh, was Warren's um, uh, counsel uh, representative for her presidential run. With that, uh, that ends today's session. I want to thank our speakers for their time and efforts, um, and to our audience for their participation and listening in. Thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome to disconnect now. Thank you. Good night.